Hi, it's Liam here. I'm just doing a quick apology before we start the episode properly. Unfortunately, there's some crackling that emerged on the recording of the podcast this week from my end, for which I apologise. So it is a bit annoying and it is prevalent throughout the entire episode, unfortunately, but hopefully it doesn't spoil your enjoyment and we'll make sure it's not there for next week, but enjoy the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to the Early Education Show, uh, where the podcast that is looking at the policy and politics of early childhood and young children in Australia. I'm Liam McNicholas. And I'm Lisa Bryant. And I'm Leanne Gibbs. And it's really great to be back. We hope everyone enjoyed our first episode and our sneaky bonus episode, which we couldn't resist chucking up last week. Uh, again, we want to thank everyone who's uh, liked and shared and and even review the podcast, and I'm going to talk about that a bit at the end of the episode. But it's really great to be back, and I think we're already really enjoying getting together and having these discussions, and we hope you are too. So we're going to kick things off straight away. So as with our first episode, we're going to open things up with just a quick item of news or media that sort of caught our attention this week. And being the democratic podcast that we are, it is my co-host Leanne's turn to bring us. What have you got for us this week, Leanne? Thanks, Liam. Um, look, I've got a riveting article from the Fin Review, which is about Michael Trail's struggle to pull off a daring philanthropy revolution. And this is the backstory to the development of Good Start through social ventures. And for anybody who's got a strong stomach for uh, lots of financial jargon and really understanding what went on in the bid for Good Start and pulling it off, you'll find this article quite amazing and very um, educative in terms of what it takes. It also kind of puts into question that stuff around hmm, public versus private and what it takes to pull off a big corporate venture. And one of the bonuses is that you'll see a lot of grown men in the article playing with um, toys such as Duplo and uh, Abacuses. So there's the uh, that's the high point of the story. Yeah, they never reach very far for the uh, the funny early childhood photo. Lisa, I'm looking forward to doing an entire episode one day on your most hated piece of stock photography, which is the one that Fairfax uses every single oh, early please. childhood article. <laughs> it's, it's coming, Lisa. I'm looking forward to it. Good. So thanks for that, Leanne. So what I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit more at the end of the episode as well, but I'm going to start including links to some of the things we discuss uh, in each of the podcasts. I'll make sure I add the link to that article Leanne's mentioned there. So thanks, Leanne. We're going to kick straight into it today because we're, as we sort of said in the first episode, we want to keep these to about half an hour uh, as much as we can. And when three of us get together, it can certainly go for longer than that. So uh, as with our first episode, it's hard to believe. But we've got two topics for discussion today. We're going to kick off with a bit of a timely one. So we're going to talk about the early years workforce strategy. So for those who don't know, uh, this was a strategy... Uh, by the federal government of the time, which was the Labor government, which was developed in 2012 and is due to expire at the end of this year, at the end of 2016. So we're in the, the dying months of this workforce strategy and as it currently stands, we don't know what its future is. But I thought um, it's worth having a discussion and possibly maybe getting all of our thoughts on the strategy itself, how it's worked and what we hope its future might be. So um, Leanne, I know you've uh, had some interest in this and actually followed it from... 2011 was because it was kind of a response to a productivity commission report what's your sort of read on you know how it's how it sort of worked over the last five years 
Um, well, I think that there's been some really great stuff that has actually come out of the workforce strategy, but I think we've got a real absence of any development now. And um, that's a, that is a huge concern for the sector because we're going to be left without professional development that's funded. We're going to be left without uh, strategies for people to get qualifications and really left without any kind of collective action around the future of early childhood and all of the early childhood teachers and educators that we need to actually fill the spots in every childcare centre and preschool and early childhood setting. So I guess my big concern is that we just don't seem to have anything happening in the workforce area anymore. There's a big sort of vacuum that, that's uh, existing at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting. Oh, go, Lisa. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to ask, Leanne, are you suggesting that the wages won't cause people to flock to the sector? <laughs> oh, you mean the incredibly high pay that everybody receives for um, for working in the sector? Yeah. Yes, that, that's just going to be the, the absolute draw card, I think, Lisa. Good point, good point. <laughs> so I think it's really, and it seems like, so to, to, it was sort of developed, I guess, in parallel with the National Quality Framework. So it was not the specific catalyst, but it was sort of developed as we're going to be having these big reforms. Part of that is going to be a big change to obviously the view of educators and the view of professionals within the sector. So it was kind of developed in parallel alongside that. And it seems like so long again now, 2012. I don't know. I think we've had about six prime ministers since then. But um, with it, with it, it's almost hard to think back to that time and how big the changes in the sector were at the time. And and they're still, you know, progressing at the moment. The National Quality Framework is still due to be rolled out in its entirety until 2020. But I'm, my view, it's interesting. I remember when the workforce strategy first came out and I've got to be honest, and we'll link to it in the notes, it, I've always referred to it as the early childhood pamphlet because it's minus content cover page and references at the end. It's about 14 pages. And to me, there's not a lot in there that's actually has ever been concrete action and my view is also you know if the if a sector like the mining industry sector or or you know something that people actually took seriously was actually facing a workforce issue the workforce strategy would be about 120 play pages long would have experts from you know every think tank in australia working on it so for me it's always been a bit of a sign that well the the, the early childhood workforce stuff is where to chuck into the too hard basket am i being too harsh there well, I think some of it um, is referred back to the states. And, Lisa, you might want to comment on, um, you know, how that sort of compares and where New South Wales sits because a lot of it was kind of pushed back into, you know, what, what are the states going to do? What are their individual workforce strategies that they took up with regard to the bigger strategy? Yeah, and I think in some of the states like New South Wales, absolutely nothing happens. So you, you both, <coughs> in New South Wales, you both don't have any funded professional development for educators, but you also don't have anything near pay parity. So there's kind of a complete disinterest in the workforce. But I do think that there was, at least when the Rudd government came in, there was an absolute understanding that if you were going to um, uh, put in a lot of money into making uh, universal access and a national quality framework, it could not happen unless the workforce was both upskilled in qualifications, but also there was enough of people in the workforce, enough teachers, enough qualified teachers, and enough other staff with qualifications, enough other educators with qualifications. It just, you know, 
it, that left and so that we're now at a situation where people like Scott Morrison, when he was minister, was just saying, why would we pay for the professional development of educators? Mm. And, and I think also, too, um, that there's a, a whole bunch of acronyms that have uh, gone mm -hmm. south. So you've got the PSC, No More Professional Development. Who, who can forget the Early Years Quality Fund? <laughs> um, the Long Day Care PDP and uh, the reduction on HEX, and there was a reduced cost of qualifications for diplomas and Cert 3s. Now, all of those were part of the strategy, and all of those are now, they're gone. They've been, you know, they've really been shafted. And I just wonder as well, so, I mean, the, you know, someone who works, who, and it's interesting, to, today as we record this, I've spent, I interviewed about four people for a number of roles we're recruiting for in our organisation. So, obviously, the two biggest you know, in general terms, the two biggest things that this is meant to tackle, the two biggest issues we face are recruitment itself and then retention. So not only finding qualified professional people who can do the job really well and can lead to fantastic outcomes for children, but then keeping them and not having them leave the sector. So I'm just interested in the two of you, you know, but we're three, you know, relatively nerdy early childhood people who probably sadly read every single report that comes out of anything to do with early childhood. I'm just wondering if any of us can point to a significant improvement or or anything that's sort of worked on either of those two issues. I think I'll be really honest. And in the ACT, there's a slightly different context. We have, you know, the public service sort of dwarfs everything in the ACT and recruitment and retention sort of always been an issue. But there's probably nothing I can point to and go, you know what, the early, work, early, years, work, <laughs> early years workforce strategy helped with this or there was a noticeable improvement in the issues. What about you two? with professional development, with funded professional development. But that was already that. there, wasn't it, Lisa? I mean, the PSCs were up and running before the strategy. Uh, yeah, but there was a further commitment to it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was just, it was conceptualising what was al already in place. But I think also that thing that Leanne said about what the state's role, I think a lot of the states did do provide scholarships for teachers. I know Victoria yeah, and that's right. did. The ACT did and as I well. And I think that has seen a lot more early childhood teachers on the ground. But to me, one of the biggest things that, you know, the strategy didn't, uh, uh, you know, have any input on and which still really needs to be faced is the fact that our universities are phasing out our not to 5 or 0-8 to eight, um year courses and only doing not to 12s and they say it's because of the demand of students which comes back to yeah well students would demand that when they know they can get higher pay in those you know in a school kind of environment and in the early years. Yeah and look I, I think it's not necessarily the demand of students I think it's about how universities are amalgamating their departments as well Lisa so We've got, you know, early childhood and education amalgamating. So when you you can't duplicate your courses in that sort of um, joined joined up uh, department. So that's that's one of the the big issues. And and the other thing is the um, like there was there was a part of, a component of this which was all about professionalism as well. You know, and that was a really that was a, an important strategic part of this strategy. But that's been something that kind of has dropped off as well in trying to grow professionalism, and that's linked with wages. And um, Liam, you and I both both uh, were uh, interested in that article around the one in five early childhood teachers plan to leave the profession from the conversation. Yeah, that and was that, sort of over the... Um, I saw it a lot on social media and 
um, sort of early childhood networks a few months back. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty worrying article as you read it, and it does directly refer to sort of what's going to be happening with the workforce strategy. Yes, so we've got to be prepared not just for um, people to be, you know, really spending their time in uni and then not doing any, taking up any role, um, but also this great deficit in ECTs. So it's, and if there's a deficit in ECTs, does that lead to um, some undermining of the, the requirement for qualified, qualified staff as well? And I think for me as well is it's remembering that the, the qualification requirements are still, they're going to be tightened up over the next four years. So by 2020, um, depending on the size of the early childhood service, there'll be a requirement for more early childhood teachers than are currently in centres. And New South Wales is a bit of an outlier because there's always been those higher requirements. But, you know, where I'm based in the ACT and in most of the other states and territories, I think this is a bit of a sort of a cliff that's sort of coming towards us probably quicker than we think. And I'm not sure that the workforce strategy as it currently is, is going to help us with that. But it's probably a good segue then to the reason I wanted to, the reason we wanted to bring it up in discussion today is we're obviously approaching the end of 2016. The workforce strategy, such as it is, is due to end. The current Malcolm Turnbull government and the education minister, Simon Birmingham, have made no commitment to extending it. Labor in the most recent election as one of their election commitments said if elected, they would pursue it. We don't know if they're planning to continue that in opposition. So um, maybe Lisa, you first, what are you, are you hoping there would be another version of the workforce strategy? Uh, I've given up on having useless hopes, Liam. If we've, <laughs> we've got a government that can't even get its childcare policy through or its you know, jobs for family policy through. They're not even going to be anywhere near thinking about the workforce of this sector. You know, it's just, it's not an issue for them. Oh, Lisa, 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 so 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 sad, so pessimistic. You're not thinking that there's going to be a brand new workforce strategy that's going to be brought forward and embraced by the sector and and uh, funded by government. Let me think about that. No. <laughs> well, Leanne, maybe we could turn to you for the slightly more optimistic view. Hopefully, what so. If we put on our optimistic hat for a second, say there was some huge change of heart and maybe there was the development of, you know, fairly quickly, but we're, in, we're almost in September now, uh, if there was a development of a new workforce strategy, what were the kind of things you'd be hoping to see in it? Well, look, I, I would hope to see the government embrace the Productivity Commission's inquiry into workforce as much as they've embraced the um, inquiry into childcare and take up all of the recommendations, which um, would be a wonderful thing. And they're, they're, I'd love to see funded professional development, funded qualifications, um, a, a growth in um professionalism and, of course, a, a move to um, pay parity for early childhood teachers with um, primary school teachers. That would be absolutely fantastic. And, and that's like for educators across the board. Yeah, definitely, yes. Bringing up that lowest, um, you know, the, the Cert 3, it's just not enough. It's not enough for people to to survive at all. So all, all of those things. But I think it is this um, real commitment to professionalism and one of the things that Scott Morrison said was that the sector is evolved and it doesn't need um, any more professional development. But <laughs> that's, you know, we've got accountants who still have professional development, doctors who still have professional development, all of those things. And yeah, but what he'd argue, Leanne, is that that's not funded by the government. Well, I think we would find if we dug deep enough that 
probably quite a lot of it is Lisa I'm pretty sure that it would be and not only that where people are paid a higher wage they can afford their own professional development so you know it's one of those security so it comes routes. back to wages yeah. yet again yes indeed yeah well I think I'd probably echo the Lisa's pessimism but if I had to be optimistic I'd be echoing the same sort of things from you uh, Leanne and the, the, the kind of thing I'd want to see and look maybe it's a purely aesthetic thing but I think I, the overall disappointment with the the length and the content of the workforce strategy as it is I'd like to see you know more in-depth version of it maybe including some research and some stories of practice from overseas but a real sort of acknowledgement of the issues facing the sector and some concrete actions to take them and yes and it is still a lot of it does need to go to the states particularly given the the regulators are state-based but it would be great to yeah have something that's a bit more that we can sink our teeth into a bit more and it's not an early years workforce pamphlet but um i guess we'll just have to watch that space but i think given yes it's it's september it does not seem likely that we're going to have a 2017 to 2020 strategy dropping into our letterboxes anytime soon so <laughs> We're going to move on to our second topic for the night, which is, uh, or day, if you're listening to it during the day, uh, the second topic is, it's now, people will call these all different things. I've, in my notes, I'm going I'm to call them family communication apps in early childhood centres. So it's those specific sort of apps like, and I'm, I'm, I'm loath to name specific sort of products because I'm probably going to be slightly mean to them a bit later, but it'll be the things you've seen advertised and that sort of uh, through technology will provide updates to families on your child's progress during the day. And from what I can tell, they just seem to be basically Instagram for children directly to parents. Um, Instagram or Facebook? Instagram, well, yeah, I think there's obviously a few different varieties of it. Now, I'm going to... Let's hear from Lisa and Leanne first because my views on this are fairly strong and I'm going to have to possibly restrain <laughs> myself. So we might hear from the reasonable, nice people first. And I'd, actually, I'd, re, I'd really love to hear your views and then I will probably go on a slow round, which I will try to rest, restrain as much as possible. But maybe... Leah, what makes you think that we're going to be any you know more in favour of these things? I did a bit of research the other day and came up looked at all their marketing lines, you know, their taglines, and I'll just read some of them to you because I think some of them kind of convey a lot in their, in their lines. Uh, never miss a moment. So, in other words, if you buy this software package, it's, um, parents will never miss a moment. Or always together, even when we are apart. Again, very much marketing towards the guilt of parents. Or never hear nothing again. That was another brand, you know, <laughs> so that when you ask your child, what did your child do today? Now you will always know. Photos and videos of your child's day give you a view of their day. Or the one that, you know, really, really got me was how sure are you that your staff members face Faithfully represent your brand in every email that they send. <laughs> Our that was my favourite. processes give you more control over this critical aspect of your marketing strategy. And I think that's where this kind of all gets a little bit scary to me because are you doing documentation? Are you doing um, family involvement? Or are you actually marketing through these things? 
Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I think that this is this is almost the um, sort of version two of the scrapbooking uh, craze that we saw where, where um, documentation meant putting together a lot of really beautiful photos of children and giving them to families at the end of the year. So I think it's, it's that kind of um, approach on speed. So I, I think, you know, in terms of actually understanding children's development, analysing that and, and, uh, and understanding children's strengths and all of those things, it does none of those things. And the only question I would ask about the, these things before Liam launches into a diatribe is, how does anything that we use allow us to understand more deeply and uphold children's rights? That's all I would say. That is always a very good question, Leanne, and probably one as early childhood professionals we should be asking <coughs> all the time. All right, so buckle up, people. Liam, just, just, sorry, just oh. before the rant, can I just go give you one piece of information which might make you rant even more? Oh, God. I happen to know that one of these pieces of software does an alert to each educator if they haven't posted an update to families <laughs> at least every 10 minutes in their day. Which is not creepy at all. Why would that be creepy? <laughs> all right. Liam, we're launching you now. Oh. Go for it. <laughs> all right. I'm going to preface all of this, and actually this was really... I, I, we had this topic lined up for discussion before today. I interviewed... One of the people I interviewed today was an early childhood teacher who'd worked in a family daycare space, and... And she sort of, she used it as a selling point. And I, and I had to be really clear. So I had the discussion with her about why I disagreed, but I also made the point really clearly that I, that if people choose to use it, that is their choice. What it is, it is entirely my view. And it is, you know, my, my view informed by my experience with the sector and informed by my interpretation of the national quality standard and the national quality framework. But I do want to be really clear because I imagine, you know, hopefully we have, you know, a handful of listeners and some of them might be using this, these, this software in their, in their centers and having really great experiences with it. And I've, I haven't used it and I very consciously argued against it in a number of roles. There's two, key broad issues for me and probably Lisa and Lan, you both touched on them in, in different ways anyway probably the first one is absolutely from the from the quality area one educational program and practice perspective I think it's a very slippery slope very slippery dangerous slope to get down when we funnel all of the creative amazing things we can analyze and write and say about children and we funnel it into this templated app approach so everything has to fit into this it has to look like it's like facebook you don't get a choice about how your stuff on facebook looks it has to fit into that template that process and i think it trains educators then to be ticking that box rather than you know children's learning is is crazy and chaotic and explosive and 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 our, our thinking about children's learning should be the same same and it should not be locked into a single way of doing things. So I think I do think from a professional educational perspective, it is it's a worrying trend and it's something that should be at least considered. And and, and my look my view is is to not use it, but I but if you are in a position where you're using it and maybe it's an organizational directive that you have to, is to at least think about that and think about what is that doing to your practice as an educator. because um, the, the the thing that really worries me about it is, is when it's sold as the solution to documentation. I hate anything that is marketed as the solution to your documentation problems. Documentation isn't a problem to be solved. Documentation should be tricky and it should be frustrating and it should be 
hard because the analyzing children's learning and planning for it is really difficult and tricky and we need to be careful about marketing that says we're going to solve this problem for you and all you need to do is spend 9.99 a month or whatever it is so i would really caution uh, i would really yeah caution you know in terms of your work as an educator the second one is it is that that sort of creep factor around the relationship it promotes with the families and particularly for me it twists educators thinking into thinking that documentation is for families and I hope this isn't a controversial view, but it's interesting having talked to people. I think it sometimes comes across as it. Documentation is not for families. It's not for families. Documentation is for educators and it is for children. It's primarily for educators. It should absolutely be shared with children. Families have a legal right under the National Quality Framework to view the documentation. They do not get a say in what it looks like. As soon as we sign ourselves over to saying, well, this is for families, and I've got a oh god, Lisa, that story about getting a notification if you haven't updated anything to send shivers down my spine. But as soon as you sign yourself over to this documentation is for families, and families have to approve of it, or families have to have to like it, you've lost the battle. You've you've you're focusing on entirely the wrong things, and your documentation will suffer as a result. So I think that I am, and I I do get on my high horse about this, and I say this as someone who's completely addicted to technology. I'm recording this podcast on my huge Mac. I have my iPhone and my iPad in front of me. My, you know, images of my children are shared on every photo stream, you know, device known to man. But it's, you know, when we're looking, when we're thinking about our work with children and our professionalism as educators, we need to be really careful. We're not signing over the work we do to a company. End rant. (laughs) <laughs> Can I add one more thing to your rant? And Please. I think that was a fairly mild rant. <laughs> but I'll just tell you a story. Because I monitor the media about all childcare, I discover the most interesting things. But people may not know that a childcare service in New South Wales was only recently, a few uh, last week, week before, was fined $13,000 plus 16000 in costs as well as the director um, personally being fined $6,000. Why? Because a five-year-old autistic boy slipped away from the centre and it wasn't noticed. But it came up in the judgment about what they were doing, what the staff was doing to enable that boy to um, leave the centre without being noticed. And it it said in the article and in the judgment that the staff were doing administrative tasks. One of them was a Facebook-style app for updating parents. So, yeah, you know... All the staff were engaged in that except for one staff member who was um, supervising. Yeah. yeah. And the, so reason, the reason why the director was done was because she had instructed the staff that they hadn't done enough posts. On the on the app that they were using. Now that's you know that's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about. My my objection, apart from the fact of how these are marketed to to parents and to childcare centres and how they work on mothers' guilt about and mothers' particular guilt about leaving children at childcare centres, but the the most horrible part about it to me is that what is the the educated not paying attention to what the child is doing when they're busy updating your parents about what the child is doing. Mm. As a mother, I'd much rather have the educators focusing on my child than on me. 
But it, and it comes down to the the aspect of it's marketing, marketing, marketing. That's what they're all about. Um, but something else that we might want to take up in the future is around the documentation um, aspects of of these um, approaches because we need to have good approaches to documentation, not solutions. Good approaches that do that take on that 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 important aspect of pedagogy and early childhood education. But these probably are not the answer. And I think the thing for me, and what I, what I sort of say to people is, if you are struggling with your documentation now, which, by the way, is not a mark of shame or is not a mark of you're a terrible educator, it probably is a mark of you think seriously about your work and it's not good enough for you yet, which is actually a really positive approach. And we know that critical reflection is an important element of the National Quality Standard. But... Uh, if you're struggling with your documentation now, or if bluntly, if you're not good at your documentation now, buying one of these apps is not going to solve that problem. The only thing that will but solve Liam, that problem... they promise that, they, that it enables you to record and communicate learning as it happens. But, Lisa, the, the point about all of this is that it doesn't matter what promises are made, it doesn't matter what it can do, it depends on a sector to actually embrace it and take it up for it to be successful. So it really comes down to the professionalism of the sector, how they use it um, and how uh, we choose to embrace new technology and not be a kind of slave to it, I suppose. And I think the other thing for I'd sure. add quickly, and I'm now breaking the half an hour rule, we're nearly at the end of our time, but I'm going to extend it out now. The other thing I'd be really clear about, this isn't an argument against no technology in centres or no technology used in uh, communication with families. I think it's actually really important to use all the tools at your disposal mm -hmm. to communicate with families. And for some organisations, that might mean having a Facebook page or a Twitter page that you control and that you can decide what goes exactly. on there. Or, yeah. you know, using email better. I don't think even in the sector we don't, you know, use that, you know, but, but we can create our own approach we can communicate out when we like and we can set that agenda for families and i think the other um, thing i'd recommend for early childhood professionals and particularly those in leadership roles is have a really honest and upfront discussion with the with your families about what that means about and setting the expectation for what documentation will be at the center i think we're often far too backwards in coming forwards about actually saying here's how we're going to do it and that's the way it's going to be and unfortunately if you don't like it maybe you need to try another centre. But as long as you're meeting the national quality standard and you're, you know that the work you are doing is going to support children's learning and development, I think we need to be far more proactive around saying, here's how we do it. You might not get an update every day about your child. There might not be a lovely photo every day, but here's what is happening. We're focusing on interactions and relationships with children. And the documentation we produce is really rich and focused on the early years learning framework rather than you know, an Instagram update, which seem to be what the majority of these are. Yeah, but Liam, it's very hard for for some services because the, the marketing tactics that these companies that are producing this software have done have been to, first of all, to go to all the large childcare providers, get them on board, and then say to the other smaller childcare providers, and I'm sorry I keep using the word childcare, but that's how they're marketed, that... Um, Look, you 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 won't be able to sell your services unless you also take this kind of um, document, uh, yeah, software on. Yeah, but I think the other, just in sort of wrapping up that conversation, I do want to be really clear that although. 
that is my view, and it seems to be mostly shared by Lisa and Leanne. Well, I, I, I personally, particularly, I, I, I want to have discussions and disagreements about early childhood, and I'd love, we, you know, we'd love to hear from people who have had different experiences with these kind of software. Um, and we'll, I'll list our contact information at the end of the podcast. But we might move on to a bit of a new segment we've developed for this show, where we're just going to sort of really quickly list. One or two recommendations for people to check out. It might be an article or a video or something sort of available, but um, just something to, for you to think about as you head into the weekend. So, Leanne, did you want to start? What are you recommending for people this week? Um, well, I'm re- recommending that they download the whole Productivity Inquiry report, uh, the whole Productivity Commission report into Workforce, which came out in 2011. Um, that's a good, long, fun read and... Um, uh, I would say, you know, it gives you a really clear picture of what the recommendations were and should be. Um, and also the uh, conversation article that I mentioned about uh, one in five uh, early childhood educators leaving the sector. What about you, Lisa? No, way too hard for me. I read way, way too much stuff to recommend one. I'll, I'll come to it next week and I'll definitely have... I'll, you know, I'll have one or two. You'll have narrowed it down. Well, that's yeah. right. Leanne's done two for you, so that's all right. So we'll have three at the end. Um, my recommendation is actually a recommendation slash apology. I think I uh, proudly and slightly too ahead of myself marketed the Oz Early Ed podcast in our first episode of, as Australia's first early childhood podcast, which isn't strictly true. So I want to give a shout out to Gowrie New South Wales, who launched a podcast in July, um, which sort of is really interesting. I've listened to the first couple and they focus on sort of specific areas of um, professional practice within early childhood. They're they're a bit more organized and shorter than us. They're, they're either, they're either they've got less to talk about or they're far more, they've got a lot more clarity than we have. Maybe they're just more structured in their thoughts. Possibly. I will leave it up to <laughs> listeners to decide, but um, they've had uh, things like nutrition in early childhood. So I would really, A, give a big shout out. I think it's really important in the sector we support each other and congratulate each other on that work. And it's really great to see other players in this podcast space. So you can find oh, them by heading sure. to, their, to their website. Mm. Um, now, the other thing mm. I would, we'll do sort of behind the scenes on the podcast. So this is a bit of a, at this stage of a fairly amateur production, we're still sort of working out how to podcast and how to do what we do. But the, what I'll start doing as of this episode is including links to some of the things we've discussed. So our recommendations you should, uh, if you're using one of the main podcast apps like uh, the Apple Podcast app or one of the more common ones is then be able to click through while you're listening to this and actually see the articles as we go through. Um, that's it for the main content of the episode. I wanted to give a big thanks to... Rosie Preschool, who's written our first review on the Apple podcast, uh, the iTunes page. So I want to do a big thing, do a big shout out to Rosie Preschool. Um, It is, as I sort of said in our first episode, in our bonus one, um, it is really fantastic if you can rate and review us on iTunes in particular because of the way iTunes works. It bumps it up the search rankings and means the more early childhood professionals can find us. And what I'll commit to doing is if, if for any reviews that go up, I'll give them a shout out in the next episode of the podcast. So Rosie Preschool, thank you very much. But uh, you can contact me personally on Twitter at Leanne McNicholas. Um, and what about you, Leanne? I'm Leanne M. Gibbs 3. Congratulations for remembering that this Thank time. You. <laughs> Thank you. Well, when Liam said that some of the other Leanne M. Gibbses were a bit questionable, I thought, geez, I better make it clear. <laughs> and I'm Lisa J. Bryant. 
And we'd like to thank you for joining us for another week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please feel free to get in touch and let us know. But otherwise, we will see you next week. So it's bye from me. And me. And me. And me.